the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, playing by the rules, thinking outside the box, and double tapping zombies, just to be sure. Raising Cain and where to find the best wormholes. Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. This time we have part one of our two-part discussion with David Weber, Timothy Zahn, and Thomas Pope, co-authors of A Call to Arms, book two in the Manticore Ascendant series that takes place in the early days of the Royal Manticoran Navy in David Weber's Honorverse. This book is the sequel to A Call to Duty. In A Call to Arms, the main plotline of the series really kicks in, and we are headed toward a very exciting conclusion. Plus, there's a big old spaceship battle that's really cool. We'll talk about this and more with David, Tim, and Tom. We also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. Now the news. Vinkman, Stans, and Spengler have reversed the polarity and crossed the energy streams of the proton packs and the October Bain hardcovers and original trade paperbacks are at booksellers everywhere, fighting the minions of Gozer with reading goodness. October hardcover A Call to Arms by David Weber, Timothy Zahn, with Thomas Pope is here. This is book two in the Manticore Ascendant series set in the early days of David Weber's Honorverse, and we'll talk a lot more about this one in a moment in the podcast. Also out is Onward Drake, edited by Mark Van Name. This is an amazing collection of tribute stories and recollections, all by friends of science fiction writer and Bane-er author David Drake, who turned 70 this year and is a special guest at the World Fantasy Convention in Saratoga Springs at the end of October, or actually the beginning of November, I guess. There are great stories and essays by some science fiction heavy hitters in here, such as Gene Wolfe, Eric Flint, Tony Weiskopf, Tom Doherty, S.M. Sterling, and lots more. There's even a short story by yours truly in the collection, since I've co-authored two books with David, and one of my better efforts, if I do say so myself. That one is called Hellhounds, by the way, so check that out. Plus, there is an all-new Hammers Slammers story by David Drake himself. And out in original trade paperback format is Raising Cain by Charles E. Gannon. This is book three in the Cain Reardon series. That includes Compton Crook winning and Hugo nominated first entries, Trial by Fire, and Fire with Fire. This is some great straight up science fiction, and we'll talk a lot more about it with Chuck Gannon later in October. A Call to Arms, Onward Drake, and Raising Cain are now available at booksellers everywhere. This is part one of a two-part interview with David Weber, Timothy Zahn, and Thomas Pope, talking about the new entry in the Manticore Ascendant series, A Call to Arms. We'll have part two next time on the podcast.
want to welcome David Weber, Timothy Zahn, and Thomas Pope back to the podcast. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi. Hi, Tony. David Weber is the creator of the internationally best-selling Honor Harrington series and the Honorverse within which that series is set. David's Honor Harrington science fiction novels have sold millions of copies over the years. David is also the author of many other Bane books, including the epic fantasy Basel series, uh, one of the one of the names for it. The latest entry is book one in the new Ken Hoden subseries of that, Sword of the South. David has 17 New York Times bestsellers, and there are over 7.5 million David Weber books in print. Timothy Zahn is the creator of the Cobra and the Black Collar series for Bane Books. He is also the author of the New York Times number one bestseller, Heir to Empire, and more than 40 science fiction novels. His novel Cascade Point won the Hugo Award. Tom Pope is the founder of Bu9, a collection of professionals assisting David Weber in defining and documenting the honorverse. In his first professional job for Bain, he served as lead editor for House of Steel, the Honorverse Companion. Before founding Bu9, he served as the co-designer of Ad Astra Games' Saganami Island Tactical Simulator and as the co-author of both issues of Jane's Intelligence Review. We're here now to discuss the latest addition to the Honorverse, A Call to Arms by David Weber and Timothy Zahn with Thomas Pope. This is book two in the Manticore Ascendant series, now out in hardcover at booksellers everywhere. So, we are at book two. Travis, uh, our hero, is ten years older than in A Call to Duty, the first book in the series, and he's now an officer as book two begins. What's been going on in his career and his life during all these years, uh, between the two books, I mean? Travis's life, and this was about the most boring 10 years in that, so we went ahead and skipped it. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Pretty much, yep. So we pick him up. He's what? Uh, he's finished uh, his officer training. He's serving in a uh, recruiting station? Well, he served on a, a ship or two and then wound up doing some recruiting and such. As I say, nothing much happens during those years, so that's is, why we skipped is- ahead. What he's been doing is getting his junior officer ticket punched, pretty much. Yeah. Um, and yeah. if you don't have a war and glorious acts of, of heroism going on, that's really not the most exciting time in uh, an officer's life. I think even C.S. Forster had to create all sorts of extra drama to make Mr. Midshipman Harrington work. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what is um? Tell us about Travis a little bit. He's he's an interesting character. He's quite he's he's nothing like Honor, or at least he's different than Honor. Um, Tim, I you before said that aspects of Travis's character are his name is Travis Long, uh, are based on yourself. Can you elaborate on that? Well, it's basically the um, the the dual uh, components of his personality. He is a he tends to be a rule follower and yet he tends to be creative. And in that respect, uh, he's similar to me. I tend to be the type who follows the rules, you know, assumes they all mean something, not the one who cuts corners. Um, But at the same time, I've got a certain amount of uh, creativity, otherwise I wouldn't be able to do my job as I do. Uh, So in that respect, um, he's similar to me. I think I'm probably taller and handsomer, though. I'm pretty sure of it. Oh, and, and and more modest. Oh yeah, <laughs> definitely. 
what did how did um how did you arrive at the idea that you wanted to uh to center the series on this on this one guy anybody david perhaps um well i think there were a couple of factors one was that uh tim had done uh, a really really cool short story or possibly long short story short novella i, I don't know exactly how you'd put it uh, for one of the Honorverse anthologies. And Travis made, like, the, especially the follow the rules but think outside the box aspect of him made for, I thought, a very interesting character. And he happened to be squarely in the middle of a uh, a time period that uh, we really wanted to uh, explore and expand in the Honorverse. And... I think that one of the things that I like about the character is that he is very unlike Honor in the sense that in a lot of ways, Honor's competence comes to her naturally, and Travis has to work at it. And while Honor is, especially the young Honor, uh, is not going to go out and trash the rules. I don't think she ever was as... Um, she never needed the degree of discipline that Travis wanted when he went into the military in the first place. So maybe what it goes back to a lot is that in creating the background for this character, uh, Tim and Tom, more than I, created a character whose beginning point was so different from honors that he had to grow up to be a very different person. If you see what I'm saying, mm -hmm. honors much and, is physically stronger also than Travis is. <laughs> She's from Sphinx. Yes. Well, we also uh, had the we also had the limitation that because David, with complete lack of foresight, never mentioned him in any of his books. <laughs> I, I don't know how it yeah. slipped my mind. Yeah, I know, I know, David. Uh, because of that, we have to make sure that Travis never gets the kind of recognition that Honor does. So he is always in the background, or someone else takes the glory, or we've got some political reasons yep. why people want to kind of keep him uh, not with a lot of recognition. So that's I'm, also I'm hoping, into the, the thing. I'm hoping that by the time we get to the end of his career, uh, he will have received a certain degree of recognition, but it's going to be always for things that are kind of uh, semi in the closet for one reason or another, so that by honor's time, he can be one of those pivotal naval figures who's been forgotten. Uh, there are plenty of examples of those in uh, in real world naval history um, that that we could we could grab uh, you know that, that there are parallels for for someone who was deeply significant but even during his lifetime never got the degree of recognition uh, that that he deserved. Um, I could think of one uh, World War II example. Uh, uh, the um, the guy who was really the, the, the chief of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, for Franklin D. Roosevelt was Admiral Lee, and nobody knows who he is today, and yet he was absolutely critical 
operating there in the background to keep the Joint Chiefs doing what they needed to be doing. And he was Franklin Delano Roosevelt's total confidant on this. And yet, there's never been a biography of him. So that's something that happened like 60, 70 years ago and is already largely forgotten. Whereas if you take Travis and you're 300 years further into, you know, 300 years into his future, we could maybe let him have a little recognition during his lifetime and still have him largely forgotten uh, by the time we get to Hunter's time. They're not going to name tree cats after him. As a... I've, come, I, I've come to like him enough, okay? And I'm hoping <laughs> we can at least get Lord Hornblower in the West Indies out of this for him or something. <laughs> we have a couple of ideas of, of things to do. Uh, we, w we will be discussing those in books down the line. Yeah, possibly book well, for us, in fact. Actually, actually, I think that probably if you wanted... Okay, the problem that Travis has is the problem that naval, uh, naval history fictitious characters have in our own timeline. Because I never mentioned him in the earlier books, it's like Hornblower and Bolitho and uh, O'Brien, they have to be on the fringes of the action and accomplish great things that nobody ever really hears about a lot or that were invented for them to do because they aren't in the historical record. And unfortunately, as Tim pointed out, I slipped up and left Travis <laughs> out of the historical record. Well, um, there are some momentous things going on. Can you situate us within the history of the of the Star Kingdom at this point? I mean, this is a big time for Manticore. I think that's really a Tom question in a lot of ways, because mm -hmm. he's been doing the detailed timelines and history on this. Yeah, so the, the, more just than Travis, I think what we've had to do is sort of carve out this book from the negative space of what we know didn't happen or what we know happened in the history. Um, so we have, we have this momentous event, the attack on the Manticore home system, and we didn't have any information about how it actually worked, which was definitely to the advantage of, of us making the book, so we can work out the details there. Um, but we also know that the Manticore Navy has been really, you know, has this rich history that really started about a hundred years after Travis. So we've had to be really careful about what we do in terms of creating the history of the Navy. We know this is a big event, but it was a big event that um, was for, was overshadowed by Edward Saganami um, in the 17th century. Um, but what we've got right now is we've got a star kingdom that is, has been, um, you know, had a scare in its very early years. We had the Free Brotherhood, this roaming band of, of pirates and mercenaries that would come and basically ransack systems, I mean, the space Vikings almost. Um, and they were they were getting closer and closer. And Manticore had the resources, unlike a lot of the other systems in the area. Manticore had the resources to give them a run for the money to really you know build up a navy enough large enough to to give them pause, large enough to actually protect themselves. Um, and they did. They, you know, they, they they fought a couple of quick battles, and the Brotherhood said, "Well, it's not a good place to be." So they moved, oh, you know, northwards, north northeastwards, um, towards the Haven Quadrant. And now Manticore is a um, hundred years later. They've got um, 
a larger navy than you know any of their 20, 30 nearest neighbors, and nothing that they need to do with it. It's a it's a quiet neighborhood. There isn't a lot of piracy up until really just starting starting with this series. Um, there are no big threats on the horizon that they know about. Um, and so we're not looking at the Navy of Honor's time where it's, you know, they've been, you know, as, as Honor says in one of the books, you know, she's been either been fighting or preparing to fight the People's Republic her entire life. That's not true these days. The Navy is just a job. You go, you put in your time, you, you know, play on board ships, and then, then you're done. It's a peacetime Navy. And we have a lot of interesting things we can explore with what happens in a peacetime Navy and then what happens when you have a peacetime Navy get thrust into a war that they weren't expecting. Uh, well, Manticore is kind of a backwater at this time because something important hasn't happened yet. Exactly. Right. Well, yeah, Manticore, I've, I've, I've used the parallel before. Manticore kind of goes from being Denmark or even Iceland uh, into being the 19th century British Empire on steroids. Um, there are obviously distinctions there because, you know, Victoria ruled like, what, six-tenths of the world's surface or something like that, and Manticore does not control anywhere near that much of the galaxy. But in terms of uh, economic stature and the ability to project national power, Manticore is this little one binary star system that can make the Solarian League with 1,500 inhabited planets back up simply because of the combination of economic, uh, geographical, uh, and military clout that it's developed. Um, and all of that really is due to the fact that, as you say, something momentous is about to happen, and they're about to discover the existence of the Manticore wormhole junction. And you really kind of have to think in terms of its impact on Manticore, you have to think of the junction as being the equivalent of every canal and cape that is part of our maritime trade network in the present-day world. Uh, it's seriously almost that dominant uh, position on, on freight lines, passenger lines, and communication, since the only way to send messages is by ship. And I think sometimes, I think sometimes people don't quite grasp when they're reading the Honorverse the extent to which that one astrophysics anomaly catapulted Manticore from this sort of quiet little backwater into one of the movers and shakers of the explored galaxy. Yeah. The and at this point in the story they have not discovered uh at least Manticore doesn't know that the if the wormhole has been discovered. Nobody knows it's there except perhaps some uh clandestine operatives. So what uh, what Tom, you're talking about the Manticore Navy being a peacetime navy. One of the things I love about the 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 book, the feel of the book, is that everything's always breaking down constantly, and at the worst possible times. Um, fill us in on the technological state of things. Well, I mean, we're obviously we're 400 years in the past, so that has a lot of effect on 
the, the technology. Um, and it's not, you know, it was not a particularly quiet 400 years. I, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of, of things on these ships that people in honor's time wouldn't even recognize as issues to be solved. Um, the, the ships themselves are individually much smaller, much weaker, um, but they carry weapons that are um, comparatively much more powerful. The largest ship and the smallest ship, the big difference is how many people get killed when, one, when you get hit by a single missile. Um, you know, larger ships have more ability to defend themselves. They have more point defense autocannon. They have, some of them have counter missiles, these, you know, old slow chemical field counter missiles. Um, you know, they have a little bit of armor, but in the end, um, the, the balance of power is really towards how can you get the first shot on target? Um, before they can get the tar- shot on target to you. Um, and that changes the tactical dynamics a lot. On the other side, we also have the the um, the maintenance issues and the fact that they're a peacetime Navy, or a, a poorly funded peacetime Navy at this point. They're operating ships that are a century old, and these ships have a lot of moving parts, and they have a lot of really old moving parts that are being held together with the, you know, the, the equivalent of spit and duct tape. Um, and so they spend just as much time fighting their own ships as they do fighting the enemy in some cases. Well, one of the things that is kind of kind of interesting and neat to me about this is that in a lot of ways, the Navy of Travis's time has more in common with naval tactics of today and the Navy of Honor's time has more, especially before the introduction of the introduction of the multi-drive missile, uh, has more in common to do more in common with the days of uh, at least World War One, and more likely in some cases uh, of uh, the days of sail. Now, honors in Honor's time, the weapons are longer ranged. But in Travis's time, ships aren't really designed around the theory that they're going to take a lot of hits and keep fighting. They're designed around the theory that we have to avoid being hit or get the first hit in. By Honor's time, the technologies have shifted to such an extent that you build a ship with the best defensive systems that you can, but you also build it assuming that it will be hit and that it will survive being hit if it's a capital ship to remain in action. And that's really kind of alien to the way we design, we've designed wet Navy ships between, say, 1950 and the last few years. So I, I just find it interesting that we've kind of stood the progression on its head a little bit here. So, uh, impeller wedges, David, we've had this discussion before. This is a very important plot element in lots of Honorverse books. Um, can, how do these ships work? What's the basic technology here that makes them go? Well, the, and 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 what in impeller wedges are are? It's very important that they're impervious, right? Yes, yes. Well, basically, the way that this is is envisioned here um, is that. If you think of a ship uh, when its impeller wedge is up as being the surfer in the curl of the wave or maybe the the uh, 
the lemon seed that you're squeezing between your fingers to, to shoot it somewhere. The theory here is that you are creating these two inclined bands of gravitational stress and that they can be theoretically instantaneously accelerated to light speed. The problem there is that there's no physical structure that could withstand being accelerated at that rate, even if it is inside the grab wedge, the grab wedge that you're going to accelerate. So we had to have an inertial compensator, which allows you to dump the, the acceleration forces um, into the wedge. And even so, you, the maximum grab that you can attain is, is not going to let you get anywhere near uh, instantaneous light speed. Um, the, the impervious nature of the, of the wedge is sort of, uh, unanticipated side effect of the propulsion system. It really wasn't envisioned as, oh, we have a wonderful armor for our ships now. It just worked out that way because the, the, the bands themselves, the stress bands, you go literally, there's a, there's a gradient of literally thousands of gravities across this fairly uh, shallow uh, uh, volume of space. And anything physical that tries to get through there is simply shredded. Uh, and uh, even very powerful energy weapons are, are badly bent and defocused, trying to batter their way through the wedge. So that means that the only real vulnerable aspects of a ship are its flanks and directly ahead and behind. The geometry of the wedge means that the threat zone from the in front is bigger than the one from behind, which is why the uh, you know the, the 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 tactical ideal is to acquire what they call a down the throat shot because at that point you have the widest possible firing angle at the target. But one of the things that people need to bear in mind when they're reading about these battles is that the vulnerable aspects of these ships are really very narrow. Um, and so acquiring the firing angle that you need is critical to your, to your tactics and your strategy. And that's one reason that eventually the wall of battle evolves, because it stacks your ships vertically uh, in a way that clears the maximum number of broadsides, but also gives you the maximum number of possible firing angles on the opposing fleet. At, at Travis's time, the ranges that can be attained and the power of the weapons that you can mount mean that you have to get a lot closer than you do in honor's time. And that being the case, you actually have a better shot at getting the firing angle that you need. But better shot doesn't necessarily mean a good shot, as Travis <laughs> discovers upon occasion in the books. Mm -hmm. Well, can we backtrack a minute to the origin of, of the series in the real world? Um, Tim, how did you decide to, to, I mean, I can understand how Tom got involved with this because he's Bunine, um, but uh, how did you uh, decide to go ahead and, and spend uh, a considerable part of your creative energies in, in this new series with David? Well, it was my own fault. Uh, as David said, I had written a novella for uh, 
the beginnings anthology that had part of the, the Battle of Manticore in it, along with a little bit of Travis's backstory. And as usual, when I do an honorverse, or when I did an honorverse story, I had to remind myself how all of this stuff worked. And especially with this one, uh, all the technology had to be retrograded. So Tom and I were doing emails like crazy back and forth as he tried to remind oh, wait, wait, me to up to speed. We're doing emails back and forth like crazy, Ken? <laughs> Um, past tense? Well, past tense <laughs> then. He wanted the origin story. Uh, yeah, we're still doing emails back and forth. Um, but back then we were doing all of this uh, this preparation all, and I was throwing out ideas, and Tom, as, you know, as usual, saying, no, that won't work, no, that won't work, no, that won't work. <laughs> well, maybe that one will work. Um so in one of the emails, it was the Sunday of an Origins, actually. Uh, I, I was sending off an email that morning to Tom, of course, copying everything to David, and I made a little uh, admittedly snarky comment, David, are you sure that after all this work you want a 30,000-word novella and not a 300,000-word trilogy? I got a call from him that afternoon. Um, he loved yeah, the idea. See? see, that's what you do. You just open the door. And I go right through it. Yep. Well, actually, David and I talked earlier about a possible young adult series, uh, possibly paralleling the Stephanie Harrington ones. And we'd bounce that idea around a little bit. Uh, and then this came along. Uh, David jumped on it with both feet, uh, caught Tony at a bad, you know, a bad moment, and she agreed. Vulnerable moment. Yeah. Vulnerable moment. Yes. It was at a convention, wasn't it? Yeah. Something like that. And um, suddenly I'm looking at uh, three books and uh, probably now more as soon as, you know, Tom signs the contract. Oh, yeah, we've, uh, it, it's an interesting area. Well, one of the things um, that I, I know I've said before, um, I am deliberately letting Tom and Tim take the lead on 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 structuring and writing these books. I'm, you know, I'm, I, I, I stay as abreast as I can of their discussions and the final draft and so forth is coming through here. Every so often I will do kind of the helicopter author thing, pop in there, you know, uh, suggest something or whatever. But because we are so much earlier and because the star kingdom of these, this time period is so different from the Star Kingdom, uh, even of King Roger's Day, much less Honor's Day. I really, really wanted a different feel to the books, as well as to the technology and the, the uh, historical personalities, the characters. And um, I, Tim is one of the authors who I absolutely, totally trust. Uh, and Tom is, uh, in addition to being the guy who founded View 9, has become a very close personal friend. And he and I have conversations in which I am bouncing off the walls and he's trying to keep up with me and write stuff down so we don't forget about it later. Um, there weren't two people I could think of who were better suited to put this together and give it that different feel while still remaining faithful to the honorverse. So for me, you know, it was kind of a, a win-win situation. Yeah, so um, 
how you, you sort of described how it works. Um, it, it, there's a lot of email going on because Tim Timothy lives uh, across the country from from you and Tom. We we could not have done this pre-internet. There's simply no way. No, no, no. yeah, not easily. So. To get back to the book, we have a, a great assortment of uh, characters. Um, a lot of them have been introduced in A Call to Duty, the first book. Uh, Travis uh, gets a love interest this time, tactical officer, lieutenant commander, uh, Lisa Donnelly. Uh, and she's very much involved in the events that get the story rolling in the book, um, as is others of Travis's old friends and subordinates. Um, well, he wasn't they weren't subordinates in the first book yet. Um, it, can you explain, it won't be a spoiler, I don't think, and we can get get into the story a little bit of, of what happens on Casca and um, what Lisa Donnelly and, and Chomps, uh, Thompson, I think his last name is, um, get involved in there. Some of it. We have, uh, as David said, we're just <laughs> learning about the Manticore wormhole junction. And that first information is not, uh, that, that first discovery is not by Manticore, but by somebody else who sees an advantage to be had. So they send an agent to um, basically coordinate and orchestrate a takeover of the Star Kingdom. And part of his, uh, what he needs to do is find a mercenary group that is well below everybody's radar, cannot be tracked to his bosses, and... Uh, Events on Casca are part of that scheme, and um, I don't know how much more we want to say, but uh, this guy is very slippery, very dangerous, and uh, he's a lot of fun to write. Yeah, well, talk some more about Lynn, which is his name. Um, he's he's a piece of work. He's he's not really a slimy villain. He likes restaurants, good restaurants, for instance. Um, <laughs> Does he have a first name for and where does he Jeremiah Jeremiah Lynn is his Jeremiah name. Uh, what can you tell us about his how you either thought him up or what his origins are in the Otterverse? He's basically well, the man who will get the job done uh, works for a very powerful group of people uh, they have sent him to as I say orchestrate the uh, uh, taking over of the Star Kingdom, and uh, while he is not above murder or uh, anything else that he needs to do to to uh, fulfill his mission, he's also not just going around flailing and shooting everything in sight. He is uh, he's wielding more of a scalpel than a you know, an axe, which again makes him a little more interesting. Well, I think I think what makes him interesting. Um, is that he's a real villain. Um, and what I mean by that is we have a tendency to want to, to, to maybe not stereotype, but at least exaggerate our villains. Okay. I mean, and there are monsters out there who get their, get their, their, their pleasure out of inflicting pain or, or whatever. Then really doesn't. Lynn is a lot more like, uh, in some respects, Blackie Duquesne from uh, the E.E. E. Smith novels. Um, he is prepared to do, as Tim said, whatever it takes to get the job done. And in that respect, he's he's amoral almost more than he's immoral. 
because he defines everything he does in terms of how do I accomplish this objective. Now, the objectives that he's accomplishing are, mm, at best, a really dingy shade of gray. But, you know, most people don't really think of themselves as villains, even if they are villains. Um, that's something that I've tried to keep track of in my own characters, and I think Tim has done that exceptionally well in, in Lynn's case. Um, but on the other hand, if you go back and look at Tim's villains in his other books, um, he's always managed to do that, to not give you cardboard cutout villains, um, and to give you someone that you can actually, in some ways, almost kind of like uh, once you get, if if you take him on his own terms, you wind up liking him. You really do. I know that's you're not supposed to say that about somebody who is out there to, you know, commit murder on on uh, uh, a solar system scale in order to steal a critical natural resource. But he really does kind of like if you get with if you get inside his skin and look at it from his perspective, you're kind of like, oh, well, of course he did that. <laughs> you also have to remember that in at least a lot of David's early books, the, the, he was going against the People's Republic, and a lot of the Peeps uh, officers and such were not villains. They were doing their job. Uh, makes it much more... Um, I don't know, Rommel type or something. Whereas Lynn is not encumbered by, I have a duty because I swore an oath to my nation and protect my people. It's, okay, this is what I'm going to do because they're going to pay me for it. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, Lynn, Lynn is kind of a corporate mercenary himself. Um, yeah. he, he's, he's a gun for hire, and he doesn't care who you hire him to shoot just so long as if he does the job well, he gets paid. James Bond on the wrong side. Uh, are we going to find out more about where he came from, uh, perhaps? Because um, it, it interests me. I would like to know where a guy like, how a guy like this came to be. Um, well, Tim, there's actually almost, almost a touch of the sociopath in him in the sense of somebody who is untrammeled by any sense of why he shouldn't be doing what he's doing, if you follow what I'm saying. True, yes. Oh, yeah. He's a likable sociopath. <laughs> he, he asks you... Uh, supposed to be a likable the... sociopath, too. I mean, you know. Well, he doesn't kill without reason, but of course they're his yeah. reasons. Yes. And he finds out where the best Kung Pao chicken is before he blows you away. Why not? Remind you for knowledge. <laughs> so, um, Travis is now all right. He's 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 on his way now as a as an officer. Um, can you sort of outline uh, his his journey in the book um, without you know we don't want spoilers, but but he's um like you say he's not gonna he's he's not somebody he he's somebody that often gets uh. Recognition passes him by, and yet he's he's again. That's part of the historical thing because he's not well known in honors time. But part of our our goal was that 
the recognition, the official acclaim passes him by, but the people who really know what happened do understand and do appreciate. And yes. that will be enough for him. What about his his run-ins with, um, say, that junior officer who's the uh, the nephew of the admiral, whose name I can't recall at the moment? Pocatelli. Um, that's, that's sort of a, a paradigm Travis Long moment, right? He's he's not going to look aside at something. And something was not done according to the the book, and it was repeatedly not done according to the book, and so he will come down on the guy whether he's a nephew of the system commander or not. Yeah, that's very trap. He's very good at understanding the written rules. If there's a rule book, you can set it in front of him, and he will do everything according to that book. He doesn't understand the unwritten rules. He doesn't even know that. Well, I think he knows they exist at this point, but he doesn't know how to follow them. So, you know, there's well, all of the, the social rules and the sort of the d- dynamics that he doesn't understand as well. I think I think that's probably fair, but I think also that Travis does continue to operate under the theory that there's a reason for the regulations. And one of the things that he was so upset with, uh, with Bocatelli about was that what he was doing was causing equipment failure, equipment non-function. Now, you can argue that the equipment was functioning improperly because of age and poor maintenance, etc., but one of the reasons that Travis, as I saw it, was coming down on him was that he was making the situation worse rather than making it better. And he was relying, as Travis saw it, on his family name to cover his ass when he when he did screw up. So I think that there is an element in there as well. He, he, this is a character who needs structure. And I commented earlier that the way that Tim uh, built his his uh, life before he joined the Navy, you understand exactly why structure is so important to him. Um, but he's also a guy who figures that the reason, you know, there may be a lot of crap that got added to the regulations since they were originally written, but that there's an underlying core that is important to the way the Navy works, the way that the equipment works. And he is he is defending that core reason, I think, in a lot of what he does. Do, do you guys think that's fair, or am I over-reading on that? No, I think that's reasonable. Yeah. Yep. That was part one of our two-part interview with David Weber, Timothy Zahn, and Thomas Pope discussing A Call to Arms. We'll have part two next time on the podcast. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Now here is another segment of John Ringo's novel of zombie infestation and the heroic humans who fight back, determined to pull the world from disaster and humanity itself from the brink of annihilation. It's all taking place 
under a graveyard sky. Faith, Kaplan said, standing in the hallway with his hands on his hips. I'm sure your uncle told you, no more zombie hunting. She went zom on the goddamned elevator, Faith swore. She'd finally gotten the woman into a hold where she couldn't roll down between the cubicles, with her legs scissored and one arm up behind her back, not to mention the apparently entirely useless chokehold. She still wouldn't quit squirming, and Faith was just so impressed with all the help she'd been getting, meaning none. Just trank her. Kaplan obligingly bent over and jammed a tranquilizer injector into the woman's thigh. See, that's how these things work, Kaplan said. The red end is the end the needle comes out. He took a spandex bag from one of the other guards, who were looking equally amused, and slipped it over the woman's head. And now she's not bitey. As the woman went flaccid, Faith pushed her away and rolled up into her feet. Please don't let me have any cuts, Faith said, other than, you know, the hole in my thumb. I bashed her over the head with my mail cart, but it didn't stop her. And then she was bleeding all over me from the cut on her head. We'll get you down to decontamination then, Kaplan said seriously. I hadn't realized it was that bad. Faith's front was covered in blood. I just thought about a problem, Faith said. The decontamination shower was, to her surprise, just a shower. Tile-lined and the whole bit, with funny tasting and smelling water. She'd been instructed to wash thoroughly with soap, and that was about it. Kaplan had squirted betadine onto her thumb again, for all the good it would do. And that is? The female security guard who'd been left with her asked. I don't have any clothes with me except what I was wearing, Faith pointed out. For future reference in your later years, I've always found it's best to know what clothes I'm putting on before I take clothes off. Just a tip. The guard's voice was amused. Very funny, Faith said. My clothes were covered in zombie blood. I couldn't get them off fast enough. I noticed, the guard said. I'll go see if we've got a set of tacticals in your size. Guys, medium usually works, Faith said with a sigh. It wasn't her fault she was cursed with gigantism. Hey, and clean, please. I'll see what I can do. Assuming I don't have zombieitis and have later years, Faith said quietly. Steve picked up his phone at Tom's ringtone. It was about time for a daily check-in. So far, there had been no major incidents reported. Hi, Tom. How's it going? Uh-huh, he said neutrally. Right. Okay. How's she doing? Stacy's head came up from reading her iPad at How's She Doing. Okay. And this happened how? There was a long pause. Hang on, Stacy's looking bug-eyed. He looked up and shrugged unhappily. Faith ran into a zombie. Turns out it wasn't the first time, which everybody had carefully not mentioned. She's possibly infected. Oh my God, Stacy said standing up. I need to go on shore. Tom, you're my brother, and God knows there have been things I've done in my time that... Pause. Agreed. And my only real response is what you said. 
How the hell did that fall under? I'll make sure she's safe. He paused and listened, and then nodded. Okay. Agreed. Yes, it is fate, after all. Yeah, I know. Yep. That's fate in a nutshell. Stacy wants to go on shore. Is there a way? Okay. Got it. Yeah. Bye. He's sending a boat over, Steve said. With security for you. They're at the apartment. I guess you can stay there tonight. There's still no curfew, but you don't want to move around at night. What happened? Stacy asked. I think I'll let Faith explain, Steve said. Apparently, Tom's been trying to keep her from zombie hunting and failing. When she did finally give it up, some secretary went zombie in an elevator. Faith wasn't bitten, but she got blood all over herself, and she already had some wounds from the previous bouts. So they're afraid she's infected. Good news is, she's had the vaccine, so they're hoping between the small amount of infection and the vaccine, she'll pull through. Hoping. I'm already packed, Stacy said, then paused. That means you'll have to man the boat yourself. I've got it, Steve said. I can handle a few sleepless nights. Thank God for coffee, as long as it holds out. There's good news and bad news, Dr. Curry said. A set of tacticals had been found in her size. Ditto tactical boots. Faith was planning on dressing that way from now on. Screw street clothes. Don't keep us in suspense, Tom said. Her blood test is positive for antibodies. But, he said, holding up his hand to forestall the responses, that would be the case anyway. She had the primer vaccine. That probably means that those were present from her immunization shot. However, she may have gotten a solid shot of D4T6. What? Faith asked. That's the new designation for the beta expressor virus, Sophia said. Zombie virus, in other words. Oh. So we'll take the full Pasteur route, Dr. Curry said, holding up a syringe. This is the primer. Again, in two days, you would have had the booster. We'll give you a shot a day of primer or booster for two weeks. That should adequately prime your system, even if you did get some viral load from your scuffle. And by pumping your body full of the attenuated virus, it will force your immune system to respond. Hopefully faster than the virus can take you over. We'll also increase your potassium supplements. Pump you full of antivirals, even though their effect is limited, and give you a B12 shot to bump your immune resistance. And you're going to have to go into quarantine here, Tom said. The room's fairly comfortable, but it's, face it, a cell, if you haven't turned by tomorrow. Okay, Faith said miserably. She looked around. It was only the four of them in Tom's office. Is it cool to talk about, you know... Yes, Tom said. Then if I do turn, I want to get turned into vaccine, Faith said, looking at the floor. That way, maybe somebody else won't. That's not going to happen, Tom said. Uncle Tom, Faith responded. I don't mean what you think, Tom said, holding up his hand. You are not going to turn. You're not. We are not going to let that happen. But if it does, Faith said. 
tearing up. Sophia leaned over and pulled her into her arms, hugging her. I'll make it myself, Sophia said, choking up. And we'll save it for special people. Faith sobbed. Thank you. Okay, Dr. Curry said. If we've gotten that out of our system, we need to start the procedures. Faith stood up and rolled up her sleeve. Go ahead and shoot me up, Doc. How you doing? Despite all their additional duties, Durante and Kaplan had volunteered to maintain watch on Faith. Sort of like a rat in a trap, Faith said. The cell wasn't particularly small or uncomfortable as such things go, but it was still a cell. And when I have to go, you'd better not be watching the pickup, she added. Do I really have to be on camera all the time? It's for science, Durante said. Seriously, if you turn, they can watch the progress of the disease. Who can, Faith said. In case you forgot, it would be kitty porn. Cause zombies, like, strip. You haven't been keeping up with YouTube, Durante said. The FBI has about given up trying to police naked zombie girl videos. They're everywhere, and this would really be for science. Which is pointless, Faith said. I can tell you about the progress of this disease. They get real angry and snappish, freak out and start pulling off their clothes. That's when you know they're a zombie. Or one of my ex-girlfriends, Durante said. Sorry, tasteless. No big surprise, Faith said. I need something to read, a book an iPad, something. I've got some technical manuals, Durante said. You might want to read the one on injector operation, just as an example. Very freaking funny, Durante. Oh, Faith said, tossing off her covers. She had put on a pair of shorts and a t-shirt while Tom made sure nobody was watching. Now they were soaked in sweat. Durante? Who's out there? Kaplan. I'm sick, Faith said. Burning up. Can I get some aspirin or something? And some more bottled water? I'm calling the medics, Kaplan said. Any formication? I'm a little young, Kaplan. Formication, Kaplan said. Itchy skin? Feeling like bugs are crawling on you? Yeah, Faith said. I knew what you were talking about. Little bit. Mostly I just feel sick as hell. Nurse is on the way. Please don't bite me, the nurse said. He was in a full moon suit just in case. He checked her BP and pulse as well as her temperature and shook his head. I'll do my best, Faith said. But the difference between normal zombie irrational and how I get when I'm sick isn't much. Don't do anything I don't like, and I'll try not to rip off chunks of flesh and chew them. I'm calling Dr. Curry and Dr. Simmons, the nurse said. Your temperature is 105, which isn't good. Any feeling of itchiness or feeling like bugs crawling on your skin? Formication, Faith said. Itchiness, but I've got dry skin. I get itchy pretty often. Maybe worse than normal, I don't know. I feel sucky. If I was still working the EDC ward, we'd have you in a lukewarm shower, the nurse said. I'll see what the doctors say.
I thought you said this shower would be lukewarm, Faith yelled. She'd gone from fever to chills, and the cold shower wasn't helping. I'm freezing. Faith barely remembered getting back to the cell. The bastards wouldn't even give her extra blankets because they didn't want her temperature skyrocketing. I don't want to be a zombie, she muttered. But I would like to die. Now, please. Now would be good. Faith, honey? Mom? Faith said. She'd been dreaming a really vivid dream. More like being there. She was a knight on a horse, fighting in a big battle. She wasn't sure what was reality and what was hallucination anymore. Oh, wait, she said, shifting up. Her mom was in a moon suit. You're real. Why wouldn't I be, Stacy said, sitting down on the bed. I think I was hallucinating, Faith said. You shouldn't be here. What if I zom? It's pretty hard to bite through a moon suit, Stacy said. And you're going to be okay. Focus on that. Yeah, well, you don't want to get this, Faith said. Zombie or not, I've never felt this bad. It'll be okay, sweetie, Stacy said, cradling her in her arms. It'll be okay. Mom, Faith said. When you cry like that, it ruins the whole it'll be okay thing. She paused and looked around wildly. I think I'm going to throw up. That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a rule book full of regulations for the celebration of storytelling victory, plus a salvo of thanks and plaudits that cut straight through the impeller wedge of ennui, for David Weber, Timothy Zahn, and Thomas Pope, co-authors of A Call to Arms. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. The Bain Free Radio Hour is brought to you by Bain Books Audio Drama. Presenting dramatized audio plays of the best science fiction and fantasy with a professional cast and cinema quality soundtracks. Now available, Eric Flint's Islands, based on the novella by Eric Flint. Also available, Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas based on the novella by Larry Correa, set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles at BaneEbooks.com. Just put Islands and Detroit Christmas in the search bar and enter a world of listening pleasure. Bane Books Audio Drama. Oh, oh, oh.